Let's pray. Father, help us in these moments to make a choice to follow you. From wherever we are, God, give us grace to follow in your good ways for us. And we pray now that your word would have its good effect on us. Lord, may my words be useful in your hand. I pray, pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We are on the front end of the book of 1 Corinthians these days. We've made our way into the third chapter. If you'd like to open up your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we are uh, following up on what we talked about last week. And <clears throat> by way of review and by way of clarification, Last week we talked about a couple scripts that we would like to write for our, our lives that we're choosing between. The one, we are helpless and pitiful, and the other, we're a hero. I talked about being Woody Allen or being The Rock. And just by point of clarification, um, the idea is not that if you're going to be a Christian man, you need to be a sniveling, weak person, okay, cowering. That's not the idea that was behind that. You weren't listening closely if that's what you came away with. There's plenty of evidence in the Scriptures of great heroic acts of faith by followers of Christ. But we don't get to write a script where we get to boast. All the glory is God. He gets gets it all. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul continues to address that. No boasting. Their boasting is what was dividing the church. And Paul's greatly concerned that the church not be divided. Um, They don't get to boast about their salvation. It's all of Christ. They don't get to boast that they understand the gospel. That's by the Spirit. There's no place for boasting in the Christian life. And so Paul continues today writing to them as people of the Spirit who understand the gospel. And he says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as fleshly people, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. You're still fleshly, he says. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? See, Paul has already told them, They are spiritual people. They have the Spirit of God. That's why they've believed, because the Spirit's work in them. But he says, I can't treat you as spiritual people because you keep acting like people without the Spirit. Basically, he's saying you're acting like unbelievers. They are marked by jealousy and quarreling, and this is contrary to what people of the Spirit live by or live like. Paul's saying to them, essentially, why haven't you been changed? And that's the clear expectation of the Bible, is that when we encounter the truth of God's Word, it should change us. We should be transformed by it. clearest statement of that that I know of in the Bible comes from the book of James. He says, don't merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
anyone who listens to the Word doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror after looking at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he's looked like. It's foolish. He says, don't be a fool. Listen to the Word and then let it change you. The first thing Paul puts his finger on in this chapter is that they haven't changed the way they're supposed to. They are still at the milk level because they haven't applied it to their life and been changed by it. They're not ready for further teaching until they get that right. So before we run on into anything else Paul has for us this morning, if I were sitting down with you and we were having coffee, and I said, tell me how have you been changed by the teaching of the Scripture or by your study of it in the last year? Could you answer me? Could you tell me, I'm not as angry as I used to be. I'm more pure. I'm kinder. I follow Christ more closely. I'm more faithful. Could you tell me how it is that you've been changed by the Word of God in the last year? See, the expectation is transformation. That's why you're here is to be changed, not to be entertained. You can dial up better entertainment. But the purpose here is transformation. We should steadily be being transformed to be more like Jesus in our character. Why don't we change? Why do we get stuck in patterns that we know need to change? There was a Harvard Business Review article a couple of years ago. The question put to them in a business context was this. This is the title of the article. What's the real reason people won't change? They're trying to help managers in business figure out why employees continued in patterns that were contrary to their good and the good of the company. Why won't people change? This is what they said. It's a psychological dynamic called a competing commitment. And until managers understand how it works and the ways to overcome it, they can't do a thing about change-resistant employees. They say that these competing commitments that employees have are based on something called big assumptions. And it looks like this. They did a case study with a lady named Mary. And Mary, first of all, has something called a stated commitment. She wants to be a team player in the way she exercises leadership in her company. She wants to share it with her with her coworkers, with her employees. But there's a problem, the next thing they diagnose, why that's not happening. And in Mary's uh, thing, she is, her problem is she won't delegate. She keeps it all on her plate. So her stated commitment is to share leadership, but the problem is she won't delegate. The next question is, what's the competing commitment that keeps her from delegating? And her commitment is to high-quality work that she alone can do. That's her competing commitment. Her competing commitment is that she's committed to having things go really well and being in control and making sure that happens. The last thing, what's the big assumption that leads to all these problems? Well, their big assumption is her coworkers are incompetent. That's her assumption. So she thinks she has to keep the work to herself, herself, And so she's not delegating, and she's not accomplishing her stated objective. Now, I drag you through all of that because I want you to think with me, what if the Harvard Business Review guys 
instead of going to Mary for a case study, went to the church in Corinth. And they interviewed Paul. And they said, Paul, why isn't the church in Corinth changing? Why are they change resistant? Paul would say, uh, first of all, when he sits down with them, they would ask Paul, they would say, Paul, what is their stated commitment? What's the thing that they're supposed to be working on? And their stated commitment, according to the Apostle Paul, in the first four chapters is they need to be one. The church cannot be divided. That's the main thrust of these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. So he would say, the church needs to be one. Remember back in the first chapter, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. See, unity matters in the church. It's huge in the church. Paul is pressing them, all four of these chapters, again and again. You're hearing it in our sermons. Unity is huge in the church. Listen to what Jude says about disunity and division in the church. He says, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Dividing the church, Jude says, is the work of unspiritual men who are following ungodly desires. That's what divides the church. Paul and the broader New Testament is adamant. The church must be one. It's the command of God. And as the folks from Harvard would say, that's our stated commitment as a church. The church must be one. So, this is what I want you to do to start things off. I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to say, by God's grace, I will not divide this church. Okay? Go ahead. Just turn to somebody near you. By God's grace, I will not divide this church. All right. Okay? It, all right. Now, it's a short statement. shouldn't take you that long. All right. Uh, now, that's our stated commitment. Okay? We just made it. By God's grace... We will not divide this church. That's our stated commitment, and it's the command of God for our lives. Um, So the next question in the interview with the Apostle Paul, if that's your stated commitment, what's the problem? Why is the church not united? I think Paul would say that their problem, he wouldn't use that word, he'd say their sin is that they are jealous and arguing amongst themselves. Look at the third verse. Paul says, you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? That is, people without the Spirit of God. See, one of the expected differences, one of the immediate changes expected amongst people who have the Spirit of God is that we will not be divided by jealousy or a competitive spirit. We won't let it divide the church. Uh, John Ortberg tells a story. He was at a pastor's conference. During a break between sessions, he says, three of us were talking together, three pastors. One man said to another, "Um, so how's your church going? He says, in case you're not a pastor, let me translate. 
That's pastorese for how big is your church? Which is pastorese for how important are you? Are you worthwhile for me to talk to and get to know? Would it be cool for me to go back home and tell people that I had a conversation with you? The pastor responded, oh, pretty good. We have about a thousand at our church. How's your church going? The first pastor said, well, the Lord's blessing us all right. We run about 1,500 or so. And then they looked at me, Ortberg says. He said, I knew what was coming next. I was working at a church that maybe had 250 attenders at that time. He said, and then a little voice, so quiet, I was hardly even aware of it, began to whisper some management impression strategy to me. He said, the voice said, say the church has about 300 people. 250 people is awfully small. A church of 300 people sounds less embarrassing than only 250. Right at the same time, he says, another inner voice responded, what are you doing? You don't even know these men. You'll never see them again. Do you think they really care? Are you willing to trade your integrity when you come right down to it is really all you have for the sake of the status you would gain by 50 lousy people? So Wartburg said, so I said, we run about 2,000. This is not just transfers from other churches either. Seriously impressive converts. Hugh Hefner, Jimmy Hoffa, the Dalai Lama. If you're going to compromise your integrity, go big is what he said. There is a competitive spirit in the church. It divides the church. It's closely related to what Paul's talking about here when he says you're jealous and you're quarreling. See, jealousy is really an expression of pride where my intense commitment to me and my reputation will not allow me to rejoice in your success. When you succeed, I cannot rejoice with you if I'm jealous of you. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians, we'll get there in chapter 12, this this is the DNA of the church. When one part suffers, Paul says, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And if you're jealous, jealousy can twist you up so that you're glad when your competition suffers. And you cannot rejoice when they succeed. And the temptation is for us to think of other churches, other believers, as competition. Which divides the church. Are you jealous of someone else's success? Here's how jealousy tips its hand if it's in your life. Can you rejoice when someone else succeeds where you are not? Can you rejoice when their child excels and yours does not? Can you rejoice when they get a pay raise and you don't? When they get a new car and yours is in the shop? When they lose weight and you put it on. Can you rejoice with someone else's success? When they are popular and you are not. When they get the grades and you don't. Jealousy divides the church and we, our stated commitment, remember, is not to divide the church. 
quarreling and strife, Paul says. Jealousy, quarreling, strife. It divides the church. Some of you would say, quarreling is not a problem for me. I just don't talk to people when I'm mad at them. Never quarrel. Just don't talk to them. And that's nothing but a shell game. You're just putting your sin under a different shell and trying to hide it. We must reconcile. We must be one. Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus would say, if you remember this morning there's somebody you're not talking with, there's somebody you have a broken relationship with that you are not willing to forgive, you should get up and leave this room and go and make things right. It matters that much. Jesus says it will defile your worship. Paul says it's contrary to the way the church is built. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, the church is designed, Paul said, so that there would be no division in the body and its parts should have equal concern for each other. Those Harvard Business Review people would rightly identify that the problem in Corinth is their jealousy and quarreling. Could they identify that with you? Are you jealous of somebody? Are you quarreling with somebody? It's more than a problem. The scriptures say it's a sin. So if our stated commitment is to be one, but our problem is that we're jealous and quarreling with each other, what's the competing commitment that underlies that? Paul would say, he wouldn't use the language of competing commitment. He'd say, you want to know what their idol is? You want to know what they cherish and love more than God? And Paul would say, they should say, it's me. It's my commitment to me and my reputation. That's my idol. That's what I cherish more than God. It's about me winning. It's about me getting the credit. It's about me becoming famous or at least admired. At the very least, admired more than someone around me that I compare myself to. Jealousy and quarreling and the like, these things are really expressions of pride. And God opposes the proud. Even more in Proverbs chapter 16, it says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Is your pride keeping you from reconciling with someone in this room, someone in our church? You're just not talking. You know, uh, before we came to North Wake years ago, we were part of a, a really great church in Texas. And I am so much a beneficiary of that church that I learned so much about what it means to be the church from uh, that church in there. But I was learning a bunch of other things. I was in seminary at the time, which meant I knew a lot more then than I know now. Okay. And I was very aware of what I knew, and um, I was teaching a class. And at that church, and people were telling me I was good at teaching that class, so I knew I could teach. 
And because I knew I could teach, I would go into the worship uh, service, and I knew our pastor could not teach. Okay. It was boring and tepid and frustrating me. And so I came up with a plan. And I decided what I would do. I would go to church, and I would teach my class. And then I would go into one of the offices in the church, and I would spend the hour in prayer. So I didn't have to sit under that pitiful preaching. Okay? Some of you know what it's like. Okay? You know what I'm talking about. Um, and we do have a prayer ministry over in Building 6 if you need to avail yourself of it. Um, so I share my brilliant plan with Steph. We were newly married at the time, and I explained my plan to her, and by God's grace, she would have none of it. And she drug my sorry backside into church. Um, and and you need to know it has nothing to do with the preaching and had everything to do with my pride. My pride was distancing me from the body of Christ. And it happens all the time. Uh, it can happen like this. You have a suggestion for our church, an insight, a brilliant one. So you come to me, and you tell me, ever so humbly, that you have a brilliant insight for our church. And I listen to your brilliant insight for the church, and I tell you I'll pray about it, and then you wait around, and nothing happens. And you think, what kind of doofus do we have for a pastor? I share a brilliant insight with him, humbly, and he does nothing with it. He just drops the ball. What in the world? What do we pay this guy for? And so you have two choices at this point in time. You can either say, he's a doofus and serve and love unimpaired, at which you are a constructive critic of the church, offering constructive criticism. Or that criticism cannot be constructive. It can become divisive. And you can fold your arms and you can step back and say, I'm just going to watch how this plays out. I'm not serving in this kind of yahoo organization that doesn't even know how to handle a brilliant, humbly offered insight? I'm just going to step back on the sidelines and I'm going to watch and see how the spy might even visit another church or two. That's what I'm going to do, humbly, go visit some other churches. See, your competing commitment your idol, mine. It's pride. It's the exaltation of me and my reputation at the expense of somebody else. Even at the expense of the unity of the body of Christ. God help us. Well, these Harvard Business Review people, they want to know, they want to dig even deeper. They want to know what's the big assumption that underlies the competing commitment that's creating the problem so we can't fulfill stated commitment of being one. What's going on? What's really the heart of this? And Paul would, I think, say there's no big assumption. There's a big lie. And the big lie is simply this. We believe that I matter more. Way down hidden, unadmitted, we believe I matter more. 
my ideas matter more. My, my reputation matters more, matters more. The attention I get matters more. I matter more. I matter more in Corinth, in Corinth. They thought they mattered more because they followed somebody who mattered more than the person that the other guy was following. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. It was significance by association, which is really prideful discrimination. And it was dividing the church. And according to the scriptures, it's not just a big assumption, it's a big lie. So what do you do about that? How do you change such a prideful assumption, such a big lie? And Paul addresses it really in an interesting fashion in the the remaining verses in our passage. He says, when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? He says, are you not acting like unbelievers? What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he nor plant, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. He says, you are God's field. So in this analogy, God is teaching us what it means to be the church through Paul's little analogy here. He says, in this analogy, the church, you guys, are the field. And since we're talking about pride and humility, think of it this way. You're the dirt, okay? You're the dirt. Just think of it that way since we're having that angle this morning. Paul and Apollos, they're just the guys out working in the field. They're just the hired hands out working in the field. They're working together for one common purpose. There's a book written a long time ago. It had a fantastic title. It was called Your God is Too Small. Flip that around and think about it from the other side. What Paul's saying to them is not only that, but he's saying your man is too big. This is not a stature or girth thing. This is about what you think about him. You've exalted him to too high a place. He's just a guy tilling the soil, working the dirt. Paul says he and Apollos, they're just servants, just like guys who wait on tables. And Paul is extraordinary in his example here. This is the legendary apostle Paul here, the guy who wrote a large portion of our New Testament. And he's putting us up himself on an even keel with a guy named Apollos we know almost nothing about, except that at one point he had some pretty bad doctrinal problems. And Paul says, we're both just workers. There's no hierarchy. It's not Paul and Apollos. He says, we're just workers together. Each of us has a task, one purpose, grow the church. Grow the church. And those of us who are leading the church and those who hope to one day this needs to be your mantra, okay? What Paul said, servants, only servants, servants, only servants. Because somewhere deep down inside of us, we want to be so much more than just servants. 
about, it's been about a year and a half ago, I guess, I had a really an extraordinary opportunity for me. I hardly ever speak outside of Northway. Um, and I got asked to go speak at Southeastern's chapel. And so I was r- real nervous and fearful about that, and I took the worship team along to kind of bolster my confidence. And they were great. They were amazing. And I got up and spoke, and it went pretty well. No shouts of heresy from any of the people in the audience. Got through it. People responded well. People told me I did well. And I started thinking, hey, I did well. This could be my big break. Okay? I could, this is my shot. I might get asked to do some of those conferences like that. T4G conference, maybe they'll make it T5G and they'll add me on. They'll ask me to be like a famous conference speaker. I'll write an article, um, maybe a book, sign some autographs. I spoke on humility, by the way, at Southeastern. (laughs) So, um, now there's a little hyperbole in all that, but I actually was thinking some stuff about that and, and I decided, you know what I'll do? And I actually did this and I'm ashamed of it, but it's so stupid that I can't not share it. I thought, I'm going to go online and see what people are saying about my talk. I'm going to see how I did. So I went online and I, I, to read what people were saying. And you know what they're saying? Nothing. <laughs> Nobody was saying anything about me. Okay? And it was perfect. It's exactly what I needed. Servants. Only servants. Okay? It's all God. It's not the guy working in the field. To exalt Paul over Apollos or some other Christian leader over another, it's like admiring the rake over the watering can. It's foolish. Because it's all God. He makes it grow. These guys are just doing the task, the different task they assigned him with one purpose, to grow a glorious church. Only a servant. Only a servant, Paul says. When you pit Paul against Apollos in order to make you feel special or more important than someone else, It's foolishness. When the adjective that modifies Christian, I'm a Baptist Christian, or I'm a Reformed Christian, or I'm a Charismatic Christian, or I'm an Evangelical Christian, I'm some special stripe of Christian, and that adjective begins to matter more than that which the cross, the costly, painful, humiliating cross exists to unify. When that adjective makes you look down on someone or feel superior to someone who is your brother or sister in Christ, then we're just worshiping the rake or the the watering can or at best the guy who wields it. When God owns the farm, He owns it all and He is the only one who can cause it to grow. See, the key to countering our errant big assumption that I matter most 
Paul says, it's to put leaders in their proper place. Only servants. And God in His, He matters. He causes the growth. He owns it all. We must exalt Him alone, far above me and my reputation and us and our leaders. So, is your pride dividing the church? Is your jealousy keeping you from rejoicing with someone else? Is there someone, someone in this church family, someone in the broader family of God that you need to be reconciled with? Are you being changed by the word? Are you willing to be changed by the word right now? And I think a beautiful first step since we're talking once again about the divisiveness of pride is that as our worship team comes to lead us in our time of response, that you would come and you would bow low in front of God and everybody and repent of your pride. And find grace at the throne of Christ in your time of need. So let's bow together and then we'll respond in worship. Father, our pride surprises us. It dresses up so nobly. It's a discernment. It's good taste. It's justice. And in times like this, when you peel it open for us, we see what it is. It's pride. And it divides the body you died to bring together. And so, Father, we are sorry. We regret it. We confess that it is evil and does not honor you. Have mercy on us and free us by the great work of Christ and your spirit, by your word. Help us now to begin the hard work of changing in response to that which you have taught us through your word. So the name of your son would not be shamed but exalted by the family of believers here at Northwake. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. <coughs> worship, worship our King.